Hey guys, this is part two of our interview with Jeff Braun. We put out part one last Tuesday. It's the episode right before this, so if you haven't heard it, you should probably go listen to it now or else you'll be a little bit lost. And we'll be back next week with two great guests. Uh, we'll have Pikes Peak winner and owner of Love Fab, Cody Loveland, on Tuesday. And uh, automotive journalist and all-around awesome guy, uh, Mental Ward, next Friday. So two really good shows for you next week. So be looking forward to those. And as always, if you enjoyed the show, share it with a friend. You can find us at facebook.com slash show. And you can visit our home on the web at www.tracktune.com slash flipangle. You can also leave us reviews and ratings in the iTunes store. And we'll talk to you guys soon. does it happen that you you get the car set up um and the driver's happy with it but then the uh, driver starts exploring the limits a little bit further um the way the car's set up and and you start finding a few deficiencies there and then have to go back and, and retweak does that happen pretty often every race okay <clears throat> because because by definition for me if if a driver ever comes in to me and says oh yeah it's perfect the car's great i'll say <laughs> well you're not trying hard enough then you're not going fast <laughs> enough it, he can never with me. That's never the right answer. That's right. never an acceptable answer. Okay. He he can come in and say, "Wow, for race pace and how hard we can run these tires and make them last for a full stint, car is really good, really solid. I can do what I need with it. I can, uh, you know, I can get in harder in the corner if I need to pass somebody in the brakes, or I can wait in the center and really put some power on great if I need to get them coming off the corner." I really like the car. It's really good. That's a good answer. Right. But if we're going for for just ultimate speed, ultimate balance, um, it's never it, it can never be good. He's got okay. to just got to okay. run it hard enough. And then we'll talk about it. You know, he'll say, man, if I overcharge the corner, just really drive it in super deep like I would having to pass somebody, I lose the front pretty, pretty quickly. Or the rear is really, really sketchy when I have to do that. And we can then decide whether we want to adjust for that or that's okay for the situation we're in. But um, so, so I've never gone into a race where I thought, man, this is a perfect car. It's a great car because I know if my driver needs to push as hard as it'll go, something won't be right about it right. because he's pushing it over the limit. Yeah, you know, I think it's a that's an interesting point to make to, you know, hobbyists and, and amateurs that are out there. I think a lot of times people will, will set up a car a certain way and start driving it and, you know, just continue driving it the same way that it is for, you know, for a whole season, not making a whole lot of tweaks. Um, but at the same time, they go, well, you know, the car's set up well. Uh, you know, I don't know if I can drive it any better than than I actually can. But in all reality, you know, it's just the way physics work. Uh, you can keep keep pressing and pushing the boundaries. Right. I mean, and that's something that people can ask themselves. And, and it's a, as they're, if they're their own engineer, you know, uh, you go to a track day or something like that and you think the car is handling good and everything's fine, it's balanced well and you're happy with it. Ask yourself, what would happen if I carried two miles an hour more in the middle of that corner? Right. What would happen? Right. And if you can't answer that, 
if it's like, mm, uh, I don't know, well, go try it and see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, or I, if you can answer that, well, I would understeer. Well, then that's then we need to work on the car and make it not right. understeer. So you can carry two miles an yeah. hour faster. Now, that's kind of the way I, I kind of discovered that on accident. You know, I'm not nearly as experienced as you are, or the people that you deal with or maybe even some of our listeners. Um, but you know, for my S 2000, I started realizing I needed to maximize corner entry speed in order to get good times out of it. And so mm -hmm. I started, you know, adding camber to the front and, you know, I, I'd add a little bit of camber and it'd be great for the first part of the weekend or the first weekend that I drive it. And then the second weekend, you know, I'd get a little bit more confident and try and enter a little bit quicker and started noticing that it would start pushing, you know, at different points. So I'd go back and add a little bit more camber and, and it was just kind of this constant thing. I kept getting faster and faster, I noticed. But, you know, it's because I kept raising the thresholds of the car, which meant I could push my driving a little bit further uh, and change the way that I drove. And it was just this constant, you know, tweaking and, you know, feeling like the car set up well. But then eventually my, you know, my confidence in the car would get to a certain level where uh, it wasn't set up well anymore for me. Right. I mean, that's... That's a good that's a good approach. It should never be it should never be set up well. You know, it it because what you do is you just keep moving that moving the the performance level up higher and higher and higher and higher and higher. And yeah, and yeah. you've just described what makes racing so much fun is because or and also at the same time super duper frustrating. To, <laughs> yeah. You never get it right. You know, it's never like ah Got it. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. Great. It's never that way. And yeah. You're never, you're never done. It's never right. done. And that's yeah. what's, that's, what's fun. You can always push yourself, push yourself more. I, I remember my dad telling me one time when I was racing go-karts, a little kid, and my dad was not an engineer and not a, you know, a super technical guy, but he was very smart and very, um, very practical. And he, you know, he, I said, I must have said, hey, I'm doing really good. You know, it's great. I'm going fast. And he said, well, it's never as good as it can be until you're flat out all the way around and never lift off the throttle all the way around this go-kart track. And I thought, oh, that could never happen. <laughs> I mean, there's corners. You have to slow down. And he's like, yeah, but by definition, anytime you lift off the throttle, that's bad. Yep. I thought, yeah, he's right. So that's, <laughs> you know, that's kind of the goal of yeah. what trying to do. And throttle all the time. So Jeff's yeah. out engineering cars that have uh, all throttle uh, all the time. That's yeah, just right. a switch, on off switch. <laughs> right. Leave it on. Yep, yep. Yeah, so that's kind of, uh, that's what makes it fun and frustrating. <laughs> the uh, uh, the you, you mentioned that you were doing uh, shocks and stuff for a while. Um, does having a background in actually building shocks um, does that uh, is that something that you you really think it could be helpful for for other people setting up cars if they really know how everything works more um, rather than just follow follow the the fast guy in the paddock and buy what he buys or yeah. um, a deep technical knowledge is that is that really uh, 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 it, I mean, it's hard to get, obviously, but um, I, I'm, yeah. really, I'm kind of rambling here. Sorry. <laughs> I know exactly where they're going. I think what the the thing is, I see people get caught up in what the other guy tells them he needs to do or know or something like that. I think everybody's 
different, whether you're a, a track day guy, an SECA racer, or a top pro team, everybody has strengths, availability of resources, limitations of resources, and so you have to maximize what you what you have available and what you can what can become available. So to say that, yeah, every track day guy should go take apart shock absorbers and learn about valving and pistons and low speed bleeds and, and shim stacks and, and digressive pistons and all the things inside a shock absorber, probably not really that important. Knowing a guy who knows that stuff might be the most important thing. So you can send it to him and talk to him and get him mm-hmm. to, to build them for you. Um, or depending on what's holding you back the most, maybe it's the, maybe the best thing for your racing current racing is to get a raise at your job so you can afford new tires next week. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm making all of this up, but you got to look at, you got to prioritize what's going to, what's the first thing that's going to get you to go faster, the quickest, some of it, you know, with a lot of people, it might be getting a driver coach, going to a driver's school, getting, you know, listening to podcasts like this or driver, um, you know, some of, you know, I'll put a plug in for Ross Bentley's speed secret stuff. You know, that's some good money spent right there. And it might be better to spend money on that kind of stuff, listening to Ross or um, things like that than it would be to um, to figure out how shocks work right oh you know what it looks like adam dropped off i'm gonna pause it here real quick and uh, and get him back on let's see Did you adam... guys hear me again oh I'm there back. he is he's hey. back <laughs> my internet uh, froze for a minute there good old uh, that's how cold gas. it is in chicago even the internet's freezing it was nice the other day and now it's gonna be like 10 degrees tonight so hey Ooh. but it, you said it's gonna be nice this weekend when we're up ice racing right it might be too warm for ice racing, actually. Oh, are you serious? Uh, well, no, we're gonna do it, but like, yeah, uh, it, it might it might almost be raining during the day. It's gonna be like thirty seven. Oh think. man, <laughs> it's like the it's like negative five there tonight. I should be good. Yeah, J- Jeff. Just so you know, our, our grid life events um, this year, we decided to do a uh, ice autocross on a frozen lake, oh. uh, Lake Dubay in central Wisconsin. Oh. Yeah, that sounds dangerous, though. When you said, oh, it's going to be too warm for ice racing, I'm like, yeah, and what's the downside? You fall through the ice? That's yeah, th- that is the downside. They, they measure the thickness in the ice yeah, and stuff, so ho- hopefully everything's good. They're going to enforce a weight limit yeah. on, on vehicles. Yeah, uh, I'm not... I'm not going to take a pickup truck out there. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, luckily, luckily, it's essentially Lake Dubay is a retention pond. Um, so I think it, it's deepest. I think it's only like four or five feet deep. Yeah. Oh, okay. So it's not too bad. I, I think uh, there was a Ford Raptor that fell through the ice at an event a couple weeks ago because he was driving where he wasn't supposed to. And uh, yeah, and it was just it looked like the wheels just kind of settled on the bottom. I don't even think water got in the cab, but I don't know how oh, you nice. get something out of the water at that point. Like, how do you even Cause you can't you can't bring a crane out there. You need uh, a barge. Yeah. I don't know. Do you put like not going to drive another or you need a really long winch on a truck at the shore or something like that? Yeah. But then I feel like it's not going to pull it back on the ice. It's just going to like pull it back and crumble the ice underneath it as you pull it back. Right. I think I think you need a barge. You need a barge with a crane. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't sound doesn't sound good. My dad told told me the story of when he was because 
I was born and raised in Wisconsin, in Milwaukee. And I guess my dad, when he was uh, college or something like that, they, him and two of their friends got this idea to get this ice boat because that would be cool. And they bought an ice boat and they went out and did it a few times and that was really cool. And it was on the ice. And then as that happens, it's like, Hey, you know, we got to get this in before the summer comes and the ice melts and everything. And the other guy's like, ah, I'm too busy. And the other guy's I'm too busy. And nobody really wanted to do it. And the ice melted and the boat the ice boat sunk to the bottom. And then they had to figure out how to get it out of the, out of the water. <laughs> So when you say ice boat, do you mean like one of the boats that has the skis on it with the big fan on the back? Uh, I think it was uh, like a sail. Or a sail. Okay. Like, like oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Like I've big, heard of that. Like skates, and it's got a sailboat, and you sit on it, and you you sail, but hauling butt along the ice with on those runners. Yeah, I mean, yeah, no, no friction really at all. Fast. Yeah, no friction, hardly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That exactly. would be awesome. Yeah, I never did any of that. That's one form of racing I haven't. Well, not the one form, but it is one of probably many forms I haven't done. Um, yeah, what what are basically like? What all have you done? You've done a lot of stuff. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, I think the cars. better question is what have you not done? What have I not? Done? <laughs> uh, have, have you done those crazy Australian boats that like do boat autocrosses? <laughs> those things no, look nuts. No, 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 none of that. Um, haven't done trying to think done a little bit of sprint car stuff a little bit of midgets um never done dirt late models okay that seems pretty cool um i've what else um done a little bit of well i've never done actually if i could do if i could do anything right now i'm really into moto gp I would love to go learn more about yeah. MotoGP and, yeah, I, and be part of that. I saw last year you did a, a track day, um, MSR Crescent, I think, right? Yep, I do. Yeah. I try to do three or four of those a, a year, Go get out on my motorcycle and go um, scare myself and show show myself how bad I am at it. <laughs> it's uh, Yeah, I love doing the track days on the motorcycle. That's that's a lot of fun. That's, that's a lot of fun. And it'll, it'll show you uh, – I'm sure it's, well, it's exactly what happens when I go chump car racing. You know, we went chump car racing this weekend at um, Road Atlanta. And every time I drive, you know, so Colin and I own this Miata. And we go out and drive uh, in the chump car races. And, you know, I go out and I'm like, okay, I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, this is great. And then Colin jumps in. Like this weekend, I did a, I think I did like a 152.8 or something in my first two-hour stint, and, I, and that was better than I had done before. So I thought, hey, I'm doing pretty good. Colin jumps in, and his outlap is a 48.5 or something like that. <laughs> oh, man. It just gives you a great appreciation for how good the really good world-class guys are. And that's what happens every time I go motorcycle racing or motorcycle track thing. It's like man to see what those motor gp guys do and how they do it is amazing right real appreciation for it right yeah i'm glad slow motion video is the thing that so you can just see how they move through some of the turns it's just insane yeah. yep. <laughs> do you guys do you guys use any slow motion video when you're engineering cars at all to see what's going on yes yeah huh. the video stuff today is <clears throat> fantastic i, I mean, just thought about for, that for 300 bucks and a GoPro or a couple of GoPros, 
<clears throat> I would say there's not there's not a practice session or a lap in the last three or four or five years that I've engineered a car, whether it's a global rally cross car or a LMP2 or any of that SCCA stuff or the current Porsche that we're running, LMPC cars that we don't, we aren't filming the in-car video. Right. Um, you know, you talked earlier about uh, the setting up the car and drive. we talked about driver feel and the driver trying to explain to the engineer what's happening with the car. For me, the, you know, the driving experience that I had at you know, not very good at it, but at least I understand what the driver's going through. To be able to sit there with him, with the data up, the video running, and him explaining it to me is the video has become a uh, a big ad- advantage or a big uh, new component to the whole debriefing thing because, you know, he can sit there and hold his hands out and move his feet like and show me what he's doing, but to be able to see it is sometimes drives the point home quicker, faster, and and with more detail. Right. Yeah. So in, in some ways, would you say that it's easier? I don't want to say easier, but it's it, you can get results quicker now with the availability of data and, and easy video and things like that than you could have when you first started. Uh, yeah, that's that's interesting. I've I I would say yes. All of that has helped. What I'd really like to be able to do is have the data I have now, the video I have now, and go back 15 years, and I'm the only guy that has that. Yeah. <laughs> you just want to be be there and know what you know now, huh? Right. And so With what the tools is, you have. Yeah. It, it's gotten – it hasn't gotten easier. It's gotten different. So – all my competitor race engineers have the same tools that I have now. And so we're working at a higher level, but it's a higher level of understanding. But because we understand more, you have more questions. I mean, it, it's, it's always that way. The more, you know, I remember going to my first wind tunnel test back a long time ago. And I had a bunch of things I wanted to investigate and want to try this and try that and do all these things. We did all of those things. And at the end of that test, I had more questions about aerodynamics and thought I actually became dumber by going to that test. Yeah. Because it's like, once you know a little bit, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And once I knew a little bit more, I was like, wow, okay, so then what happens if I do this? And if that really went that way, then what happens if I change this or change that? And I think with the data and the video, you're just better able to analyze it so you can ask better questions and you have more questions. So it hasn't gotten easier. It's gotten more detailed and more specific and more focused than it's been in the past because of all these tools that we have. I've heard people uh, people say, you know, oh, it was easier to, you know, easier to win or easier to be a pro um, back in the day. Um, but now it seems like it's easier to be faster, but there's just more fast people uh, and there's more options. Um, do you think there's ever do you, do you think there's ever a, a point we'll get to to where there's not much progression left in 
the type of racing that we're doing, like, you know, combustion engine on tires. Do you think, do you think there's a, a there's an end point to all this? I don't think so. <clears throat> I, I, it, that brings me to a, a, a story, a little story that I, I remember pretty fondly. My, my grandfather was in the business of, he had a, he was the president of a forging company that built metal forgings for like aerospace companies. They built the landing gear for the 747s and, hmm. uh, you know, so high metallurgical cool. um, forgings. Uh, and so he was he was not an engineer himself. He was a businessman who ran that company, but he had a strong engineering understanding because his business was totally 100 percent engineering based on metallurgy and strengths and materials and all those kind of things. And so he always carried around, he'd lived to be uh, 87 or 88 or something like that. And he carried around in his wallet, this, this old faded yellow newspaper article. And I remember the first time he showed it to me and it was, and he would read it and he would go, okay, the, it was from the New York times. And it said that the patent office, the head of the patent office, was going had is recommending that they close the patent office because pretty much everything that could be patented and new, is new and can come <laughs> along is pretty much done and there's really no use for the patent office anymore because there's not just really isn't that much new stuff coming out coming out everything that has been or will be invented has been invented pretty much what the head of the patent office said and then he gets to the end and he and he reads the you know you know the dateline the the date on the thing and it was it was whatever January 7th 1903 yeah. And I'm thinking, yeah, okay. So when when everybody anybody thinks that they've got it all figured out and that's as far as it's going to go, I think there's a lot more and I think that that story applies to to car yeah. racing because I mean just in my little short time I go back to what we did in 1995 with those those prototypes and what we're doing now big difference. I yeah. mean maybe lap times haven't gone faster, but we're doing it with way less horsepower and yep. and way more efficiently right i mean you look at you look at just high-end street cars these days and what they're capable of is just absolutely ridiculous right right i mean there's a there's a great example you know and, and those high-end street cars will do that for 150,000 miles with <laughs> right. yeah. you know yeah and so i think there's i think there's a lot Will it change? Will it change? Like, will engineers change what they're working on and how they, and the tools they have and the the focus? For sure. And that's, again, what keeps it fresh and, and, and interesting is that it's always a different challenge and always a different um, kind of set of criteria that you're trying yep. to, to optimize. Well, I'm glad to think, I'm glad to hear that you don't think that it's, uh, that it's just kind of, kind of, burn out and be done that's cool because <laughs> no, i don't want it to be not at all the only not thing that doesn't happen is the whole autonomous car no driver thing yeah uh, it's got no appeal to me maybe no uh, I, I i personally would love it for my tow rig on the right on the ride home on sunday night a hundred percent agree that <laughs> that would be really nice 
<laughs> oh, wouldn't that be the best if you could just uh, surf the internet and then fall asleep on the way back from Road <laughs> Atlanta at four a.m.? No, don't don't you mean watch video and analyze data? Well, yeah. that's true. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's that's the. I agree with you completely. I mean, to drive to work or to drive to the airport or to drive back from a race, that's that's not driving. That's just transportation. You just need to get there somehow, and yeah. you're the only guy that can do it. So for me, autonomous vehicles to do that, perfect, love it. But to race them as a sport, um, yeah, I don't. Uh, to me, race car driving, racing is about drivers and what they do, not what. Yep. the cars do yeah well the cars are a big part of it but it's a tool in the in the the game you know it's not the game right uh, at the end everybody likes to watch i th- you know there's i think it's interesting you know you can watch a porsche versus an audi versus a lamborghini versus a acura and 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 that's cool because everybody has kind of their own favorite brand or wants to see how they perform but when it gets right down to it and there's five laps to go People like to watch drivers race against each other more than yeah. cars race against each other. You know, it, it's interesting. I wonder if there's any correlation between race engineers that, you know, use simulations a lot and trust the simulations more than driver feedback and their idea of autonomous racing versus yours approaching it more from a driver's side. I wonder if there's a, a correlation there. I'm sure there is. I know some race engineers, you know, we're we all talk and we're we're friends and we're competitors and all of that. And there are some guys, some of my friends who they love testing and they love the design work and the testing. And, and then it comes race time and they're like, Oh, I hate this part (laughs) (laughs) because they don't like the strategy and the shoot from your hip gut feeling kind of thing. They like to be able to have an hour to analyze everything. And, and, and on the other way, it's like, oh, all this testing and all of this. I mean, I like it so that I can make my car go faster and, and make it better for the race. But I would be just as happy. I would be actually more happy if they said, OK, we're going to have a race. 24 hours of Daytona. It's going to be it's going to start Saturday and nobody can test the months leading up to it. You're going to unload Friday night and Saturday and you can't even start your engine. We're going to put the cars on the grid, and at Saturday at 2.30, you're going to fire up your engine, and we're going to race for 24 hours. That'd be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd be different. That would be different. Yeah. It would show who's prepared, who yeah. have their stuff together, who can figure out their setup right off the truck. I mean, it's not far. We used to do that in ASA. When I was running with Alan Kawicki, we would show up with our ASA car at some short track in the Midwest or Florida or something like that. And we would unload at 10 o'clock at set up the pits and everything at from noon to two, they did what they called hot laps, which was practice. You just go out and run, set your car up from three to four. They qualified single car, two lap qualifying. And at six o'clock, they would start a 400 lap feature. And at 10 o'clock, you'd be spent 10 p.m. You'd be standing in the pay window collecting your cash and you'd be off to the next one yeah it's a job huh that was fun that was so much fun though (laughs) yeah i believe it i believe it 
when, we we, uh, we we recorded with a circle track friend of ours and it's just such a uh, you know the the non-pro circle track or like <laughs> even the higher end stuff it's just such a cool environment even nowadays it's so it's so unique and different four different yeah, spring yeah. rates on four different corners yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I ran cars um i ran asa cars where we ran no right rear spring only ran three springs really Didn't even have in the right because yep. <laughs> and so much left side weight 70 percent left side weight and it was all on the on the left rear and when you stood on the gas it squat it it rocked back on the left rear and the right rear spring you didn't even need a spring because it never loaded the right rear holy cow. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's so different yeah oh, i love it it's so cool um and what uh nowadays um what uh for the listeners what are you all what's your day job like this year like what's your what's your big project this year um so i'm at core autosport like i was last year um and core for the people that don't follow that or don't know core has three racing programs going on um well, to back up a, a little bit, Core Autosports owned by John Bennett, who owns a company called Composite Resources. They do a lot of um, carbon fiber, Kevlar um, composites for the military. <clears throat> they also build all the NASCAR trunks and uh, trunk lids and spoilers for all all three manufacturers in NASCAR. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of high-tech composite stuff. So anyway, Core Autosport is a division or uh, offshoot of composite resources. And we run the factory Porsche GTLM effort for Porsche, the two cars that people are probably, if they watch any IMSA racing, they know the 911 and the 912 cars. Those are, those are run out of our shop. And then we have the GTD effort, um, which used to be the LMPC car that um, Core had won, has won the LMPC championship five years uh, for five years in, in IMSA, and we've just switched this year to the GTD category with a, a Porsche GT3R, and so we're running that. I'm the race engineer on that car. We also run the Global Rallycross, um, Red Bull Global Rallycross series in races that don't conflict with our IMSA GTD program. Uh, we run two cars there, one for John and one for my son, Colin. Uh, Colin and John both drive the GTD car, and and I engineer the Global Rallycross cars as well. So those two programs keep me keep me pretty pretty darn busy. Um, a lot of work in the shop uh, that the guys are doing. I live at home in Texas and spend the whole day in my office. Um, the internet's a great thing, and <laughs> yeah. You know, I can, it's as if I have an office right in the shop and, you know, I can, uh, email, text, phone calls. Um, we can do Skype things. We can do, you know, video, whatever I need to. And, um, basically work with, with those guys on setups and all that. We just finished Daytona and we're getting ready for a test at Sebring. So we're trying to, well, we're trying to fix the car that got crashed at Daytona and build the backup car uh, for Sebring and and work on the setups and all that kind of stuff for coming up for Sebring. And we're going to go testing with the Goldborelli Cross car here pretty soon. And and that's pretty much 
pretty much it. I do a little bit of Ferrari Challenge engineering for, um, well, we talked about Ed Zabinski. He's got a team in Atlanta, and I've been helping those guys out on their Ferrari Challenge program a little bit, doing some engineering there. Um, so that's pretty much what this year looks like. That's such a busy life. That's a, so many things to think about. Um, it's fun. I love it. Yeah, I believe it. I believe it. Do you guys have any um, more uh, jump car races lined up? Yeah, good question. Um, so last year we thought, yeah, okay, we did Atlanta. We saw That's when we saw you guys down there. It's like, perfect. This is going to be fun. We'll do some more. And we did a grand total of zero more races after that. <laughs> It just got too busy. So right. this year we did this Atlanta one again. Okay, cool. And this year we were smart enough not to even say, yeah, let's do some more. We'll do that because we have no idea. So yeah, we have fun doing it. But uh, uh, this may turn out to be a once-a-year Road Atlanta thing because right. that, that race happens to just fit perfectly between Daytona and Sebring, and we can do it. So. Well, we do know of another event that goes on right before, about a month before Petit Le Mans at Road Atlanta that uh, yeah, if you need might be able to come out to. <laughs> yeah, the problem is I think last year, so we usually test right before then at Road Atlanta, and then we also have some GRC stuff going ah, on. Ah, so, that's right. Yeah. yeah, the problem is if, if it was just being away, fine. But for me, it's probably four days I would say four to five days solid in the office before every event and three to four days after every event to try to, you know, get ready and then do the reports and do the analysis and mm-hmm. figure out what we did wrong and how we could be better. So, yeah. Uh, but believe me, anybody who's listening, I'm not complaining. It is <laughs> the world's greatest job. Yeah. Are there are there so many cool. younger people that you've seen, uh, you know, becoming race engineers? Yes. Okay. <clears throat> and, and that's really scary because these guys are way smarter than me, <laughs> like way smarter than me. Um, I, I did a I did about well when level five shut down early in fourteen, right after we won the twenty four hours of Daytona. <clears throat> I went to work for Speed Source, the Mazda factory Mazda prototype program. Right. I did that for about a year, a little over a year, I guess. Yeah, a year and a half. And um, they, I was hired there to be the competition director, which is basically I was in charge of the team from all aspects of its performance other than marketing, logistics, um, all of that. So it was everything from pit stops to procedures and processes and in-shop um, methods of how we were going to do things, checklists, all that kind of stuff. And I don't pretend I did all of that, but I was in charge of you know us delegating people to do these certain things. And oversee the engineers and set kind of our technical direction and what we were going to do. And anyway, the two engineers that they had at SpeedSource, young guys, um, you know, two, three years out of college, brilliant guys. And if, if anybody's worried about the state of engineering and <laughs> smartness in the future, you got no worries. I mean, this, there's a guy at SpeedSource, um, Zach Legrone, who is, I mean, if 
I probably shouldn't say this, but because uh, Sylvain Tremblay owns Speed Sources, I think he know. I know he knows this, but he's going to have a hard time keeping that kid because the guy is brilliant and does, and he gets it and he understands how to do. You know, he understands the whole driver relationship and stuff. He just doesn't have quite enough experience yet right now to be, you know, a top guy. But you know. He is going to be as good as it gets in in race engineering, and he's the kind of guy that I look at and go, "Wow!" <clears throat> when I was his age, I was way behind where he is now. So, some pretty good, pretty good talent out there. That's good to hear. Do most of the race engineers that are that are getting into it now do they have engineering degrees, and that's kind of what they focused on, or is there a specific program out there that's that's breeding all of these you know new race engineers or? How, how does somebody get into it these days if they wanted to? I think the you know, I get calls, emails, probably more accurately, um, from a lot of guys in college, senior year, um, somehow figured out that I was a race engineer and they're like, okay, you know, I want to do that. How do I get into that? It's, I get that question all the time because there is no, like you don't go to Caltech and take the Major race, in race engineering program. Yeah. <laughs> There isn't one. Right. Yeah, um, there's no 101 program for that. Huh? No, there are some schools yeah. that uh, I'm not sure if Clemson still has theirs, but they, they had a motorsports program. There are some other schools that have motorsports um, programs. They're e- usually under the mechanical engineering um, school. Uh, so there's some there's some schools that do that. Uh, mostly, though, where it comes from is the kids are in mechanical engineering and they started out there because they had an interest in racing or maybe they developed that while they were in college or whatever. And they, they figure out that you can be a race engineer or a design engineer in motorsports. And so they get involved in the formula SAE program, um, mm-hmm. which is a competition among colleges that SAE, the Society of Automotive Engineers, holds each year. And each school that's that's in it, and there's like 100 schools in this each year, they design and build a car and then go compete in fuel efficiency and autocross and acceleration and braking events. And they get graded on the performance plus the design and uh, all the engineering work they've done, and they they declare a winner. It's a it's a national championship. For yeah, it's the, a really. Uh, there there are other countries doing it also, like China yeah. and India, and absolutely, uh, it's a really cool competition. Yeah, and so a lot of these kids that are in engineering school right now, um, well, it's become now. It's such a it's such a um, popular and recognized program that. For a young engineer to come out of school and get a job in motorsports now, if you don't have Formula SAE on your resume, it's probably not going to happen. Hmm. Yeah. So you need to do Formula SAE. They need to um, they need to understand that. And it's not so much from a what did you learn. It's it's more about if you can if you can do a Formula SAE program that is relatively successful and maintain any semblance of a decent grade point average at the same time, 
it's by definition, you know how to work long hours and under severely poor conditions with no sleep. And that's 80% of what qualifies you to be on a race team. <laughs> so makes some sense. Yeah. So race teams look for those kids who have gone through that and, and, and they're all going to start out as a data engineer. Um, you know, downloading data kind of, it's kind of like a junior engineer program. So they will, they will work with the race engineer to do analysis on in certain areas where the race engineer has pointed them in that direction and want them to go. And that's how you kind of get into the sport. Good to know. Um, it's uh, it's a definitely a really cool program. My brother started uh, on on one at uh, one of the small Purdue chapters that he was at up, up here by Northwest Indiana, mm-hmm. and it was hard to even get like the school to like agree to start it. So yeah, um, yeah, got to be in the right place, right time. Yeah, exactly. And some of them don't understand it, and some of them get. But some schools are huge into it, and they oh, yeah. have. legacy uh you know where where it's like a sports team almost you know exactly where the there's lots of alumni putting money into it and and companies and it's a um the school is proud of their performance and their wins in those in formula sae it's a big deal i mean what other what other world-class sport can you have an alumni easily get into aside from you know football and things like that. I mean, there's really not, not much besides motorsports. Right. Right. Yeah, no, it's cool. Really cool. Well, we, we've had Jeff on for quite a while here. Um, as my final question, uh, what would you change, uh, if you had, uh, you know, the, the Aladdin's lamp, um, what, what would you change in motorsports overall to make it, to make it better, uh, like what thing would you do away with, or what would you add into it? Is there is there one thing that stands out in your mind? Absolutely, and um, I've been I've been saying this for a long time, and I have this little Facebook page that you know it lets me spout off about what I think uh, race motorsport should be about. It's uh, auto racing tech tips, and I'll throw up some technical tips on there and some of the things that I'm working on. And every once in a while, I get this, this thing that bugs me all the time. And I'll put that on there, which really isn't a tip. It's just like a soapbox I get to get on. And, (laughs) and that thing is downforce. Uh, I I, need to eliminate or severely reduce the amount of downforce race cars have. If I was the king of motorsports, I would instantly slash at least 50% of the downforce off of of most modern high level race cars. I'd I'd be happier if they did 70 or 80%. And uh, because it goes back to, we talked to touched on it a little bit before. Uh, It's why it's one of the reasons MotoGP is so fun to watch. No downforce. We get to see the riders do their thing. They're sideways into the corners. They're leaning over. They're moving around on the bikes. You know, you're watching. We love to watch humans compete against each other and on machines just makes it much better. But if the machine masks what we get to see and mask the talent of the drivers, I think it's less interesting. And downforces has caused that to happen. You know, um, 
Lewis Hamilton and Sebastian Vettel and those guys are fantastically talented drivers. It's hard to see it though, because the cars make so much <laughs> yeah. downforce that they yeah. stuck. Dude, you know, are there any like uh, sanctioning bodies that do like balance of downforce uh, type adjustments for cars throughout the season, or is it only yeah, usually well, power? No, no, no. It's uh, IMSA is a great example. I mean, the DPI cars are all balanced aerodynamically. Every one of them has to go to the wind tunnel and uh, with IMSA officials, and they are run through a gamut of ride heights and, and rake angles and all their dive planes and wing angles and everything, and, and they're, it's mapped, and they know wow. exactly how much downforce and drag each one of those DPI cars makes. And Did not know that. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I didn't know that. Wow. And for at Daytona, each car, you know, a Mazda had a different minimum wing angle or a different configuration that they could run versus uh the corvette versus the um you know the nissan or you know because they're balancing downforce and drag but the problem is it's too much downforce you know okay do that but do it at at way way less down Uh, heck our gt cars make too much downforce i think for fun yeah i mean yeah I, I want to see the brake zones be much longer so we can see <laughs> how good yeah. the drivers are on the brakes. I want to see the fast corners that are flat out in fifth gear easy where a no-driving guy like me could go through it flat. I don't want that to be flat. I want that to be – I want to see these world-class guys have to work to get through that corner and be sideways. And one guy's better than the other because he's a little less sideways or he set it up a little bit better. You know, uh, that's what I want to see. Strip the downforce and add horsepower. Make these cars hard to drive. Dan Gurney had it. He, he said, you want to see drivers drive things that are difficult to drive so that you look at those guys and go, oh, there is no way I could do that. Right now, you know, heck, there is no way I could drive a Formula One car like Lewis Hamilton, but it doesn't really look that hard. No, it doesn't look that hard, yeah. Right. But go watch some of those mid-60s Formula 1 cars before the wings started sprouting on them, and Jim Clark and and Dan Gurney and Chris Amon and those guys. Man, they were working. That looked pretty hard. Yeah, you know, watching some of those videos from back then, it looks absolutely terrifying. Yeah. (laughs) Just nuts. Yeah, I I don't know if I would want to drive back then, to be honest. (laughs) <laughs> well, and it was dangerous, but very yeah, dangerous. Modern yeah. day safety, modern right. day safety, and and strip a bunch of the downforce off of them, and we would get to see drivers drive, like you get to see in MotoGP. You get to see riders ride. I mean, I was so happy when MotoGP banned the little winglets that were starting to show up last year. Because yeah, wait, just don't go down that route. Let's see Mark Marquez slide the thing in and. And Valentino Rossi try to dive it in underneath him on the brakes with the rear wheel off the ground. And, and you know, four-wheel racing was like that. And the downforce just, you know, I don't think the fans really get that much enjoyment off of, you know, pick a corner. Uh, we were just at Daytona. The kink at Daytona, turn four, is, is you know, the uh, prototype's flat through there. Easy. Flat through it, I don't know, 140 miles an hour. Okay, you stand by the side of the track and you watch it go by there three times and you go, whoo, wow, that's fast. And then that's it because everyone goes through the same way and that's it. Mm-hmm. Make that 
a hundred mile an hour corner with no wings and the guy having to lift and maybe downshift and maybe be sideways at the exit. We just caught it. Man, that'd be fun to watch. Yeah. <laughs> it, that that sounds a lot like club racing, really. <laughs> I mean, it is. Yeah. A, a lot of the classes in club racing, you can't really do anything arrow wise. Like, you know, you just can't do anything. Um, watch a but, spec uh, Miata, 100 spec Miatas with no downforce sliding around. Yeah. Okay. I'm not saying that Formula One should be in spec Miatas, but it, <laughs> yeah. It sure would be fun. To, I mean, you, you watch a spec Miata race; those guys are wheeling those things. Yeah, some of the best racing you get. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Let's see. Let's see the best drivers in the world do the same thing. And what happens is they move up the ranks and they get more and more and more and more downforce, and they're still the best drivers in the world. I'm not saying that you know Jim Clark was better than Lewis Hamilton. I don't think you can compare them. But Lewis Hamilton, technically, KK Ross. I mean. Uh, Nico Rosberg is the best driver in the world this year, but I mean, he's a good driver. Lewis Hamilton, good driver, Sebastian Vettel, but boy, I want to see him do that. I want to see a demonstration of that more clearly than what we get to see now. So yeah, it could be, a, it could be a better show. It could almost yeah. be a more fun watch show. Yeah. Right. Put the downforce off and add more power, you know, 50% less downforce or 70% and 25 or 40% more power. Boy, yeah, yeah. I, I wondered if uh, I wondered if your answer would change to that. I heard you. I heard you answer a similar thing on on another show, and it's like, yeah, I wonder if anything's going to change. But yeah, that that is kind of the the thing that really has progressed. Is that's one of the the biggest things is downforce. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it. I think it's telling that Dan Gurney, who invented the gurney flap, which is probably the most efficient downforce producing device in motor racing to come along next to the wing yeah it's proposing the same thing we have too much downforce we broke it caused it oh no what have i done yeah right 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 so So, anyway yeah that's my soapbox thing that's what i would change um nobody's gonna listen nobody really gonna do that but uh um i'll just watch my moto gp race every weekend and have fun doing that so yeah, it's uh, you. Uh, it's it's been a fun interview, man. Yeah. I really appreciate. It. You got any? I do. Got any last questions? Austin? I've got I've got one last question, and it's an engineering question. It's a question right. that's come up on on the show from time to time. Longtime listeners might might know uh, Adam and I have this long dispute about oh, transponder no. placement. Yeah, see, so you know where it's going. <laughs> oh, you about son of a bitch. <laughs> transponder placement on a car. Um, Say you run two transponders on the car, one at the front of the car, one at the back, uh, and you're running laps, you know, however inconsistent or consistent you want. Um, Mm -hmm. My theory, and which I've kind of proved on paper, um, is that unless you cross the start-finish line at the exact same speed and the exact same rate of acceleration, there will be a difference in the lap times from the front transponder to the back transponder. Uh, it's a good question. Due to the uh, due to the elapsed time that goes between the front and the rear crossing that line, you know, if if you if you enter the lap at a slower speed, uh, you know, when you cross the start finish line and then you finish the lap at a little bit higher speed, technically the elapsed time from the rear or from the front crossing to the rear crossing that second time should be a little bit shorter. Therefore. Right the lap time would be less. Right, because you're, you're accelerating for that 
15 feet right. or whatever it is right. yeah. Between, yeah. Uh, between the transfer. Right. And likewise, yeah. if you if it's reverse, you know, and you enter the end of the lap slower than you did at the beginning, then the front would read faster. Right. So just an interesting, interesting thought that I, I've always had. And we've never really come to a good conclusion. Well, we, and I we, figure who, we did who better. Uh, we did test it on my car last year. <laughs> That's and true. And it, was, laps, it was very, very, very small. It didn't show laps, up in the you can't, you can't tell. It didn't show up in the um, A&B timing. No, I didn't. It, and that's down to, I think, the thousandth. But uh, I think the place and, and, you, and with the math you showed me, I think you're right. Yeah. If you were if you if you were a standing start and you were like right before the, the beam or the coax cable under the under the track. Right. Uh, and I think on a standing start there, then you might see it. Or even even say you got held up, um, you know, the, the corner before the straightaway by a slower car. Um you know, Maybe and the end of the lap Maybe or the beginning of the lap, you crossed at a 15 mile an hour speed difference um, than you did the lap before or the lap after. Um, I mean, what's what's your take, Jeff? Um, I'm thinking about that. So I think if you had the transponder, let's say at the rear axle and you did a lap, you started out at you crossed the start finish line at 100 miles an hour and you did your lap and you came back across the start finish line at 100 miles an hour. And then you did that exact same thing with it at the front of the car. There would be no difference. Right. The lap time would be the same lap time. Right. The I think where it where you just said if you started at a standing start and the nose of the car was at a line, and you had your transponder right there, and you did a lap from a standing start, that transponder on the nose of the car started at zero miles an hour. Yeah. If you were to have a transponder at the rear of the car, but you started with the nose at the line, the rear transponder would cross the line at, let's pick a number, five miles an hour, 10 miles an hour. So that would be quicker because the the one at the rear of the car got a five mile an hour head start. Right. Yeah. That elapsed time between how long it takes from the time the front one crosses to the rear crosses is a lot longer on a standing start than it would be when you finish that flying lap. That, right. That, that car just stretches out in length as no, it goes it up and it down the straightaway, right? It doesn't stretch out. It's <laughs> physics, man. It's physics. Think about no, when you I, drive over a speed bump, slow versus fast. Same no, I thing. Know. I, I know. But the, the, fallacy, the, the fallacy is that, uh, or the, the problem with that is that it's not a fair test because you're really... In the second example, with the car having the transponder in the rear, it should, because that's what's being used to time it, it should be able to start with the rear of the car at the line. Right. There yeah. should be two lines. Right. If there were yeah. two a lines, line. a start for the front and a start for the back that hit at the same exact time. Right. Then right. you wouldn't see any difference. Right. Well, well, for my new race car that I'm building, um, I'll just put my transponder <laughs> wherever Jeff puts his transponder. Where would you put your transponder? As far forward as possible, I, right? I always put my transponder in the exact spot within two inches that IMSA requires it to be. Oh, they have a place for it. Oh, yeah. Everybody has it in the exact same spot from the okay. front over to the back. Okay. Interesting. So at least I know I'm not getting screwed by somebody else who's thought about it like you guys did and figured it out which were well, and in in club racing like like i race with scca nasa and it doesn't i mean the transponder um 
wouldn't determine the win. It, it's still a visual, you know, if, if I had mine in the back and somebody had theirs in the front, but I was still in front of them, but their transponder pinged first, you know, right. Uh, I, I would win. still be awarded the win. Yeah. You know? but. So you could do the thing. Colin and I have talked about this. Um, the best way to do it is like if the transponder doesn't have to be in a spot and you're trying to get pole or something like that, yeah. which do <clears throat> is you hold it in your hand <laughs> then you wave it forward. No, you throw it. Oh yeah, they are you strong. Close to the start finish line, you pitch that thing forward, so yeah. it crosses the line. You know, twenty feet before you, and the transponder picks up. Yeah, if only transponders weren't like three hundred and fifty dollars nowadays. But. Hey man, when budgets when budgets no uh, no object, you know that's yeah. what you do. Right, right. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah, the the level five. Uh, <laughs> you guys should have just been tossing transponders out the window of the Porsche. No, I fell yeah, off I the just, car. <laughs> you know, you've just come up with something that we just completely glossed over and didn't even think about at level oh, five. Man, <laughs> oh, I feel bad because I left something on the table. Tell Scott to be chucking that transponder out the window for for qualifying. No, if, right. if you're really smart, you'll you'll mount it with some like pneumatics behind it, and you can shoot it out from the front of the car. Yeah, oh, yeah, like a paintball gun or something. Yeah. Right? We're, so we're that's solving, my, uh, solving everything here. One story that, you know, we talked about, are there any new things in, in motorsports? So we're talking about transponders and how you could cheat that whole system and all of that. It's true story. I was a little kid and I know this happened because I read about it and people told me about it. Colin Chapman, who owned Lotus and ran Lotus cars and was a, a good engineer and yep. and in some way i named my kid after him yeah ad lightness it's, is his big thing yeah yeah i mean lightness and engineering downforce he made the first you know tunnel car and all that kind of stuff colin chapman anyway in the 60s they were qualifying he had graham hill and jim clark and i think it was this was done with graham hill and you know they used to have pit boards in the old days where you actually like a chalkboard kind of thing you held out and showed the driver his time so colin chapman is walking out to the pit lane during qualifying and in those days they didn't have transponders they used photo beams so they had a photo beam across the track and the car would cross that photo beam it would break the beam and it would start and stop the clock and they had somebody usually very talented women up there marking down which car number it was. So this beam crossing, they type on their computer, car 22. The next one was 33 as they crossed. So Colin Chapman walks up with his pit board and he's going to give his time to his driver and he looks down and their pit is right by the photo beam. Oh no. <laughs> so being the engineer he is, he goes, hmm, okay, I got this. So he puts the pit board kind of over the pit wall, the photo beams to his right, the car's coming from his left. Graham Hill's coming by, and Graham Hill gets fairly close to make it seem reasonable. And Colin Chapman swings his pit board <laughs> to the right, breaks the photo beam, holds it up like, you know, like it's a motion like you would, like kind of picking the board up. So he yeah. picks the board up, breaks the photo beam, shows it to Graham Hill, pole, because the photo beam <laughs> broke a half a second before the car actually Oh, that's got awesome. That's so great. <laughs> That's yeah. so awesome. <laughs> so the old 
the the 60s version of throwing your transponder forward right there by college yeah, yeah. your your pit board <laughs> that reminds yeah. me of the story of uh who was it back in the day had their brake lights wired up to a switch so that they could uh, i forget who it was it it might have been a lot of people i don't know but <laughs> yeah i think that's been done yeah jim hall had a mercury switch in the car and it would turn on when you put the brakes on but then it would stay on it had a delay on it it would stay on for like three seconds after you let off the brakes. <laughs> so like you never knew when this guy was lifting. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually, uh, on my CRX, Austin, I, uh, I, I put LED brake lights in uh, because they come on faster and uh-huh. I want the guy behind me to slow down earlier. <laughs> yeah. It, that was my, that was my brilliant idea. I don't, I don't think it bought me any spots this year. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Scare the guy off behind you, you know? Yeah, exactly. That's cool. Well, well, it. Uh, I hope we can do this again sometime. This yeah. was. Uh, this was totally awesome. Yeah, it's been I, a I lot would of fun. All three of us probably are thirsty and tired and want to go to bed. <laughs> I've been drinking beer. I don't know about you guys, but I, I finished off a big water here, and my voice is like I haven't even said much, but like it's, <laughs> it's gone. I have. I've killed a giant water, and I have to. Uh, I got to finish up my setup sheet. The guys are expecting the setup sheet for Sebring. For the test coming up, and I'm going to go finish that up so they know how to set the car up in the morning. All right. Well, well, we, we really appreciate you making a little bit of time for us. I think people are really going to enjoy this one. So yeah. No problem. It was fun. I love talking racing and uh, love talking with you guys. So let's uh, maybe we don't let a year go by. Yeah. Do you have to do this again? Or maybe we can come uh, you know, visit you at an event sometime. Maybe after the event's yeah. done, uh, we can yeah. pull you away for a little bit. Sounds good. Love it. Super fun. Oh, we really appreciate it, man. Um, and uh, any uh, any pl- what's your Facebook page that you uh, that you just plugged? I'm, uh, I follow it, but I can't remember what it's called. It's Auto Racing Tech Tips. That's right. So that's right. Yeah. Facebook forward slash Auto Racing Tech Tips. I don't know if there's another forward slash at the end, but that's what it is. Yeah, I, I found it pretty easily when I think you said it on Ross Bentley's podcast recently, and that's the first I had heard of it. So, okay, cool. Um, but yeah, that uh, it's a cool little page. So good, good. I'm glad you like. Awesome. It. Well, have a great night, everybody, and thanks awesome. for listening. Thank you. We'll talk to you guys later. And uh, again, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Super fun. Yeah, same here. Have a good night, sir. Good luck at uh, Sebring. Thanks.